Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to all of you, wherever you may live in the world. And for some of you, it might already be Saturday morning, depending on where it is you all reside in the world. But nonetheless, it's great to be back on the air. And um, I know it wasn't that long ago that I was on the air last, just a few days back. And from what I've seen so far, uh, it's great to see once again results uh, coming in, um, especially now that we have embarked on a new uh, podcast uh, topic series. And I don't, um, in no way do I um, intend to flaunt anything in terms of results, regardless of the book topic series we've done. But whenever I see results come in, um, no matter whether it's at the beginning, the midway point, or at the very um, stretch, or at the very, what you call like the home run stretch, meaning the very end, no matter what the numbers are, the numbers are relevant. The numbers, to me, are, are meaningful. In other words, people out there, you all, my listeners, you all really do a great job of uh, not only just listening to what I share with you all, but you all really seem to to have a passion for um, appreciating what has been um, told to you all, and I have no doubts that all of you whom have uh, been ardent followers have uh, been able to spread the word about not only about not just so much the podcasts I've done, but just really about the topics themselves. So, what I can tell you all is uh, thank you once again for being such uh, ardent listeners. It does mean a lot, and sometimes uh, we you know, find ourselves listening into uh, topics that we that we probably know information about. Like, for example, you know, all of us would know that um, that there uh, obviously were ships that uh, sailed along um, the Great Lakes, and they still do today. But we forget that uh, it was more than uh, just for uh, commercial purposes. In other words, it would be fair to say that. Um, Many uh, Great Lakes ships were uh, transporting uh, people not only just from point A to point B for uh, leisurely purposes, like what we might think of as uh, day trips in today's world, but they were transporting immigrants uh, to places uh, where they were uh, going to be starting uh, life in America in search of a better opportunity. And while many of the uh, immigrants whom did come over uh, to uh, the New World, being America, whom uh, would have settled in uh, what we now know as the present-day Midwest, but back then was the old Northwest Territory, for many of them, their dreams did come true. But sadly, as we uh, learned in the introduction to Disaster on Lake Erie, the 1841 wreck of the steamship Erie, We've learned that 254 people's lives were lost, just six miles from their final destination, and only 89 survived. And we will uh, embark upon a unique journey that will, I know unique may not seem like perhaps the best word when you uh, consider that, yes, 254 people died, but we will be embarking on a a journey that will... um, have a lot of questions, you know, who, what, why, how, how could such a tragedy of epic proportions happen, especially when we're not even in a time of war, but how could there have been such an epic proportion of loss of life, knowing that, um, knowing that so many people were aboard this ship, 
And we have to wonder, was this ship intended to um, hold so many people? You know, after all, you know, not all ships uh, were built to accommodate, say, over 300 passengers. There were ships early on that probably could only accommodate, say, 50 to 100 at most. But it is unique to know on one end that uh, ships were built to where uh, passenger capacity increased. But as but for all the uh, increase in passenger capacity, what about the safety aspects? Well, those are some unique questions that we will um, have to um, figure out, given that we will need to be our own detectives as we embark not only in this uh, episode that we will be uh, t- in this particular episode, but we will in all the other episodes that um, that in this uh, podcast uh, book topic series. So let's uh, prepare for our next uh, segment here. And in this uh, segment, it will be a two-part um, series, which pertains to the um, the elegant Erie, or and or I should say the the elegance behind the steamship Erie. So in other words. Um, Unfortunately, I wasn't able to um, cram it all in into one podcast, but I do have enough information to give you to give to you all tonight that is not only relevant, but enough of a good 101 start so that when I'm on the air again next time, when we do part two behind the elegance of the of the steamship Erie, we'll know how to end all that there is to know in terms of its elegance. Not all bad, but you know, yes, we could talk about the elegance of a steamship or any kind of ship all we want. But if something tragic happens to the ship, when the tragic aspect of it happens, then the elegance part obviously no longer has uh, relevance. Sad to say, but it is the truth. So anyways, here we go, folks, with our first leadoff question to um, part one of our two-part series with uh, the elegance of the steamship uh, Erie to uh, Alvin Oichel's uh, book, Disaster on Lake Erie, the 1841 Wreck of the Steamship Erie. So here's our first leadoff question. Was the steamship Erie named in honor for where she got launched on October 19, 1837? This probably ought to be a no-brainer, but I just figured why not ask it. So, was the steamship Erie named in honor for where she got launched on October 19, 1837? Uh, The answer is yes. She was launched, or rather I should say, rolled down towards a boat ramp in the shipyard at the entrance of French Street in the heart of Erie, Pennsylvania. So, you know, when I hear of, um, oftentimes when we think, when we hear about something being launched, sometimes I I tend to think of... um, like space shuttles getting launched from their uh, pad and up into the sky as they begin their uh, mission into space. But when we uh, hear of uh, ships being launched, they are being launched into the water, but they are being rolled down towards a, a boat ramp that can not only just accommodate their size, but a boat ramp that will help them um transition from uh, mainland into the heart of the water. So I can't imagine being alive in in October of 1837, most notably on October 19th of 1837, and seeing this uh, 
unique um, steamboat being, uh, or steamship, I should say, pardon me, folks. I can't imagine seeing this uh, unique steamship uh, being uh, launched into uh, the heart of um, Erie, Pennsylvania, into, uh, into the waters of Lake Erie. That must have been a cr an incredible sight, to uh, say the least. Of course, it's not the first time people would have seen a, a steamship be launched, not just so much on any of the five Great Lakes, but Lake Erie, folks, from what I've read in this book, had a really um, strong reputation for turning out some uh, phenomenal ships. There must be something said about that. You know, like I said, all five of the Great Lakes have uh, turned out um, unique ships in their time. But Lake Erie seemed to take um, the leading role in the 19th century. It just had a case of the, uh, what do you call it, the golden touch, uh, if, if you could give me the best uh, 101 answer to that. So the steamship Erie was built by the Erie Steamboat Company in Erie, in Erie Pennsylvania. And I, and I have a good feeling that most of you all know where um, Erie is located, uh, other than the fact that it's on Lake Erie. So for those of you who, um, who uh, aren't sure exactly if you don't have a map and all that, but you might want some uh, 101 geography, what, city, what major city would be west of Erie, Pennsylvania, given that Erie is right is located um, on Lake Erie, but if there is a major city west of Erie being in Ohio, what city do you think that would be? Uh, the city, uh, the, uh, a major city in uh, northeastern Ohio that is west of Erie would be Cleveland. And if there are other uh, cities or towns uh, that are just west of uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, in Ohio, think of uh, Fairport Harbor, Canoe, Ashtabula, uh, Geneva, Salem. So just to name a few other uh, cities or uh, towns not far or right along Lake Erie, but just west of Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, but the big one you can think of is of uh, Cleveland. Now, Erie is um, just south of the uh, Pennsylvania-New York state line. And so when I think of uh, cities and um, towns or villages in uh, southwest New York, or, or I should say even western New York that aren't too terribly far from that New York-Pennsylvania state line, uh, the, one, the big city that would come to my mind in western New York would be Buffalo. But if you want to go um, just a little bit south or southwest of Buffalo into what's known as the Chautauqua um, region, and of course, for those of you who are wine lovers and reside in uh, southwest New York State or in far western New York, um, other than the Lake Erie Wine Trail, you've got the Chautauqua Lake Erie Wine Trail. I've been to uh, some wineries on the uh, Niagara Trail, but I've always wanted to hit the Chautauqua Lake Erie Trail. So, uh, as for uh, villages and uh, towns in um, southwest New York, there's uh, Hamburg, Dunkirk, Jamestown, Fredonia, Silver Bay, just uh, um, Clymer, and uh, Westfield. So, just to name a few um, cities or uh, towns um, who um, have a lot of um, prominence 
As a matter of fact, uh, I know in uh, Hom, it's uh, Dunkirk. I know there's a lighthouse in Dunkirk um, that uh, was very instrumental in uh, helping uh, guide ships to safety along um, the waters of Lake Erie. As a matter of fact, that lighthouse is uh, open to the public for uh, tours. So if any of you all are uh, traveling in southwestern, uh, in the southwestern part of New York State, most notably in the Chautauqua Lake Erie. Uh, region. As a matter of fact, uh, the Chautauqua Lake Erie Wine Trail does go into Erie, Pennsylvania. Now, I know, folks, I'm getting a little off track here at the moment, but this is where history can um, tie in rather well. You know, it's one thing to visit some historic um, attractions, but to end, but to end your day after visiting, say the after say visiting the Maritime Museum in Erie or uh, visiting. Uh, the lighthouse in Dunkirk, why not uh, go to a winery? And I should point out that when I think of Jamestown, New York, there was a famous actress whom hailed from Jamestown, and there are statues of her, and there's also a museum named not only in honor of her, but that of her husband. How about Lucille Ball, a.k.a. I Love Lucy? Yes, folks, believe it or not, Lucille Ball hailed from Jamestown, New York, and there is a museum. Uh, there's two museums, one in Jamestown called the Lucy Desi Museum, and then there's the National Comedy Center Museum. So, believe it or not, folks, uh, Jamestown, New York has a lot of unique uh, hidden um, secret gems. And what do you know? One of those hidden secret gems was um, an actress named Lucille Ball. Well, anyways, um, we probably better uh, reshift our focus on what we need to be uh, talking about. But nonetheless, it doesn't hurt to point out cities where cities, towns, or villages where um, another uh, vital um, city like Erie, Pennsylvania, is uh, located in, in relation to those uh, cities west and just uh, north of um, Erie, uh, given that Erie is pretty much wedged between uh, Northwest Pennsylvania, Northeast Ohio, Southwest New York. It's a trifecta approach, folks. Well, given just how prominent uh, steamboats and steamships were when it came to transporting people, including goods, what are some key differences between the two? I figured this was one that you all would probably want to know more about because oftentimes we hear about steamboats and then we hear about steamships and then we're left to wonder, what is the difference between the two? Well, here we go, folks. A steamboat pertains to smaller steam-powered vessels. Okay, so if you're operating a steamboat and it's a and you're oper and it's a smaller steam-powered vessel. Are you going to be navigating oceans, or would it be better to say that a steamboat's going to be navigating lakes and rivers? Lakes and rivers. As for the steamships, they tend to be larger powered vessels whom have, the great, whom have greater means behind surviving the severity of waves and storms battering an ocean including waters along the Great Lakes. And I say water... And I say uh, the piece with regards to waters along the Great Lakes, how so? Well, when you're navigating the waters along an ocean, ocean waves can break apart pretty quickly. That's not to say they can be ferocious and can, um, and can do some things that, um, that can cause uh, damage to uh, 
to ships uh, navigating uh, the waters. But when it comes to waves along the Great Lakes, if you ever hear of the phrase uh, what's called sister waves, that's where one wave comes followed by another wave, and they might be of the same height, like say 10 or 15 foot waves, but the third wave can, punk, can uh, punch the, the, worst, um, the worst of the punches. In other words, the first two come at a 101 level, say 10 to 15 foot waves, but that third wave could be a wave that's 20 feet high or, or bigger. And believe me, folks, I've heard of stories uh, through documentaries online. And for those of you who have been with me when we uh, did uh, November's Fury, uh, the deadly Great Lakes hurricane of 1913, as well as the mighty Fitz, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, including the wreck of the Carl D. Bradley, those ships... Uh, and including all the ships that uh, foundered in the, in the Great Lakes hurricane of 1913, they all dealt with some ferocious waves, at least waves that were between 20 and 30 feet. So, yes, uh, these uh, steamships, yes, they are um, they are the they are considered the uh, vessels that yes can have greater means behind surviving the severity of waves and storms battering an ocean, but when it comes to the waters along the Great Lakes, the waves don't break apart as easily because there's not enough room for them to be able to maneuver uh, to where uh, they can break up um, much easier compared to waves along the ocean that have um, a greater, um, they have a greater, what you call like a greater horizon, they have a greater um, surface, we'll put it that way. But something else to be reminded of when dealing with Great Lakes, uh, when dealing with the Great Lakes or the waters of the Great Lakes, when we think of the month of November, for those of you who are familiar with the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and especially with Gordon Lightfoot's song that came out the year after the Fitzgerald sank in 1975, Gordon Lightfoot mentioned in that song um a little phrase that says, you know, when the skies and when the skies of November turn gloomy. Well, that has uh, always been the case. And then there was a, a famous uh, saying. It, it was not in Gordon Lightfoot's song, but many uh, sailors whom sailed along the Great Lakes waters in the month of November often said this. Nothing is ever certain in the month of November. In other words, you might be going out on your destiny, when you leave uh, har the harbor and you go uh, out onto your intended destination, the waters may be calm. Everything might just look right, but you never know when that warm and cold air will collide. It'll collide to the point where it will become a matter of life and death in a short period of time. So, so always keep in mind, folks, that the steamboats will pertain to um, vessels navigating lakes and rivers. As for the uh, steamships, they are primarily designed for oceans and for lakes, most notably uh, Great Lakes waters. Steamboats, yes, are obviously suited for calmer waters. And when I think of steamboats, one of the best examples that comes to my mind is a steamboat known as the Clermont, or some people would say the Claremont, spelled C-L-E-R-M-O-N-T. When I think of the Claremont, I think of a fellow by the name of Robert Fulton. 
Robert Fulton has often been uh, credited uh, with uh, designing the first vessel that successfully operated with a steam engine and by being uh, the first to uh, operate a vessel with with the use of a steam engine this meant folks that Robert Fulton did not have to rely on wind for sail tactics prior to the uh, steam engine or let alone with the uh, steamboat being invented um, sailors and not just sailors but their commanders a ship's crew rather I should say had to rely upon the winds in other words the crew had to rely upon favorable winds just to be able to get from point A to point B. So with the steam engine, folks, that is one big step for mankind, especially at the start of the 19th century. And what really was unique about the Claremont was that she left uh, New York City along the Hudson River come August the 17th of 1807 to think Thomas Jefferson was president and he, in his president, and during his presidency, he saw this um, piece of uh, momentous um, history take place. Fulton's uh, steamship reached Albany, New York, two days later on August the nineteenth. That trip took about thirty-two hours. There was a layover at Robert Livingston's um, estate, um, which happened to be called uh, the Claremont. And that's why Robert Fulton's steamship is named the Claremont in honor of Robert Livingston's estate. So, in other words, Robert uh, Fulton didn't come up with that name, but thanks to um, the assistance and um, funding he got from Robert Livingston, he returned the favor to Mr. Livingston by naming the vessel the Claremont. So, uh, it just so happens that two, not long after... Um, it took about 30 hours to get back from Albany to uh, New York. But ironically, the steamboat Claremont's uh, average speed clocked around 5 miles an hour, folks. But for a steamboat to be going 5 miles an hour in 1807, that was a big deal. Very revolutionary for its time. Fulton's historic feat occurred along the Hudson River just 10 years before work broke ground on the Erie Canal. The steamship Erie transported passengers between Buffalo, New York, and Chicago, Illinois, including other harbors on Lake Michigan. Well, it would make sense for uh, Steamship Erie to um, pick up, uh, or rather, rather I should say, transport and pick up passengers on, on Lake Michigan. How so? Well, Lake Erie and Lake Michigan are connected to one another. Or, actually, I take it back, Lake Erie and Lake Huron are connected uh, to one another, but but given that uh, Chicago, folks, is on Lake Michigan, it would make practical sense for uh, for the steamship Erie to be uh, to be uh, picking up and uh, transporting passengers on Lake Michigan route. Prior to uh, the mid 19th century, had Erie, Pennsylvania, established itself as a vital hub for various industries? Yes. Erie, folks, had become known as a hub or a center point, or I should say a, a center focal point for industries centering upon shipbuilding, fishing, to railroad. 
And during the War of 1812, uh, President James Madison ordered uh, shipbuilding construction to take place near and around Erie, which proved pivotal in late 1813, around September 10th of that year, when Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry oversaw nine vessels, defeat and capture six British Royal Navy vessels, which enabled American forces, in the end, to retain control of Lake Erie throughout the rest of the war, including uh, retaking Detroit, which had fallen into a, into a, the hands of the British in uh, late 1812 and into the start of 1813. The whole Michigan campaign was a disaster for the Americans early on in the, uh, in the outskirt of the uh, War of 1812. If those, for those of you who would like to learn more about, um, about the Michigan debacle, uh, I strongly recommend uh, reading about uh, William Hull. He was a, a, a veteran, long story short, a veteran of the American Revolutionary War, but uh, when it came time for the uh, War of 1812, he was not the most um, adept um, commander, whereas Oliver Hazard Perry on the water was a complete opposite a true effective commander the whole way through. Now, um, what kind of station? We're going to now talk about some uh, unique other, some other unique things about Erie, Pennsylvania here that, um, that make it not only vital, but we need to understand why Erie um, is um, essential here. Uh, what kind of station did Erie have in 1837? but the practice itself dates back to 1789. Well, in 1837, not only um, did the city of Erie have a steamship vessel named Erie, but the city had a station better known as a U.S. Customs Office. Of course, when I think of Customs Office and Customs Officials, I often think of... Um, right before uh, shots were fired at Lexington and Concord and how uh, the people of uh, Boston, Massachusetts hated, or I should say despised those customs collectors. They harassed them left and right and even forced many uh, customs collectors to resign from their post and swear upon a Bible that they would never harass um, everyday ordinary townspeople whom felt that, their, that the money they paid the tax collectors would only benefit the few and not and not the many. But yes, there is a U.S. Customs Office in Erie. And yes, the Customs Office was first established in 1789 by Congress. But folks, uh, the Customs Office and the people who work for the Customs Office, they do perform some various, uh, very essential duties. Well, one of them, one of those duties is to make sure that all necessary rules and regulations are abided by but how about protecting American seamen and passengers, as well as passing along basic information from um, immigration reports to, um, to noting or recording um, the overall number of uh, imported goods coming in, as well as those being exported going out uh, overseas to markets in, say, London or, or Paris, for example. So, you know... Yes, there can be those who may not like uh, customs officials, but they do have a job to perform. I mean, they do have to collect the taxes, and they have to ensure that when those taxes are collected that they are getting revenue that can be generated not just for short-term 
purposes, but for long-term purposes where revenue can go towards um, further um, building uh, new uh, ships that will um, help go about transporting people from point A to point B, most notably along Great Lakes waters. Uh, given that Erie was a steamship, what made her unique? Well, I think there are a lot of things that we could say that can make the ship unique. But for one, she was a paddle steamer, meaning she got operated through a steam engine which drove paddle wheels to navigate the vessel through the water. There are different types of paddle wheel steamers that existed then. I don't know um, about t in today's modern day time, and the only reason I say that is because, you know, most people don't really... Um, venture out on um, steamboats or steamships, but they are around, but they are used primarily for uh, tourism uh, purposes. So one different type of uh, paddle wheel steamer uh, was one that um, existed from the stern. It, well, it was, um, it existed from the stern uh, wheeler, meaning that it was a single wheel on the rear. Then you had a side, what was called a side wheeler, it, that was where it was one wheel per each side. And the Erie, folks, was a side wheel um, steamboat. So in other words, she, had, uh, she operated with two wheels, one on each side. Think of it as like um, a bike along the water. And as we learned from our prologue, how the, um, the, how the Indians, when they observed um, that steamship walk in the water, they referred to it as a, um, a boat without... A boat just gliding, a boat that didn't even require uh, people to take oars to paddle, to paddle aside just to get it to go from one end, from one point to the next. Now, in what year was um, Erie established? I figure we better find out uh, some history, a little bit more uh, history behind Erie, Pennsylvania here. But in what year was Erie established? Turns out, folks, uh, the city of Erie was established in the year 1795 during George Washington's second term as President of the United States. Do any of you all know, by any chance, how the city of Erie got its name? I can tell you all. The city of Erie was named for the Iroquoian, or I should say the Iroquoian Indian peoples, whose tribe or tribal name was known as Erie. So, the, the Erie Nation lived along the southern shore of Lake Erie, including um, areas of uh, western New York and northern Ohio. So, more than likely, the Erie would have uh, lived in what we now know is in northern Ohio is like, say, present-day Sandusky, present-day Vermilion, uh, present-day, um, maybe perhaps present-day Bowling Green. I don't know about Toledo, but they would have occupied even what we now know as present-day Cleveland and uh, Ashtabula, Fairport Harbor, Canoe. So yes, uh, the Erie Nation did have a uh, pretty good swath of territory. But sadly, um, all of this uh, swath of territory um, was uh, taken from them um, by, the late six, by the late 1650s. So the mid-17th century saw the Erie tribal nation pretty much get annihilated. And it had nothing to do, folks, with warfare between, between this tribal nation and, um, and the Europeans. 
This was a, it turns out, folks, it was a tribal conflict from within. So in other words, it was extended, it had to do with extended warfare between neighboring, um, most notably the neighboring five nation tribes under the Iroquois League, uh, being the Seneca, Cayuga, Oneida, um, Mohawk, and the Onondaga, uh, the, the five nation uh, Iroquois League. And this was all due to a direct result of the uh, Iroquois League helping uh, the Huron Nation during the Beaver Wars. Now, I know that sounds crazy, Beaver Wars. How in the world could there be a war over beavers? Well, folks, it wasn't a contest to see how many beavers could be killed. I can promise you that. But the reason why there is this conflict between um, not just the uh, Erie Nation against the uh, Iroquois um we call it the Five Nation Tribe of the Iroquois League, but it is involving other um, tribal confederacies where you have five or more Indian nations teaming together under one uh, large cohesive unit who all share the same uh, purpose or mission to go head-to-toe with another rival uh, group of uh, Indians who may not share the same uh, core principles as they do. So, sadly, in the end... Uh, the Erie Nation um, was annihilated uh, during the uh, mid part of the 17th century, and it and it was all as a direct result of uh, whom controlled the fur trade, and that um, and that how do you call it the rights to controlling the fur trade really pertained to um, eliminating uh, multiple tribal confederacies along the St. Lawrence River Valley in Canada and the Lower Great Lakes region. Lower Great Lakes region, folks, Lakes Erie, Ontario. So it is fair to say, folks, that even after 50-some uh, years after, say, the first English settlement being established in North America, uh, Jamestown, Virginia, it's probably fair to say that uh, even Indians uh, were having uh, conflicts amongst one another, and by eliminating more uh, tribes from within, it, uh, how do you call it, how do I say it? To sum it up, it was a monopoly. In other words, there was no such thing as fr as the free market or free competition. It was a monopoly that would be regulated, but a monopoly that would uh, pretty much say that whomever emerged victorious would have sole trading rights along uh, the St. Lawrence River Valley, including the Lower Great Lakes, for those uh, Indian nations living in those areas. Now, prior to 1837, had there been any other side-wheel paddle boats built whom just so happened to carry the name of Erie? That sounds like an odd question. Um, usually, it's very fair to assume that when a, a ship is named after someone or named after a region or named after, say, a body of water, that no other ships before or after would be would be given the same name. Well, it just so happens, folks, that in this case, that prior to 1837, there had been three other side-wheel paddle boats named Erie. Can you believe that? There were three others. Well, I'll fill you in on some history here. The first Erie, which was built, got built 10 years earlier in 1827 at a place called Marietta, Ohio. Most of you who not only uh, just live in Ohio, but probably are familiar with Marietta, Ohio, 
probably in part because if you look at Ohio and West Virginia on the map, given that those two states border one another, it just so happens Marietta, Ohio borders uh, West Virginia, most notably Parkersburg, West Virginia. And I bet many of you all probably don't know for whom Marietta, Ohio is named after. I didn't find this out until maybe about a year or two ago. See, even I learned something new when I... Um, I, I can tell you this, folks. Yes, I. some of you probably say to yourselves, you know, Kirk Monroe probably does know a lot of information, but at the same time, he's probably learning something new that he didn't know before. Well, in this case, folks, I can say just that because... Marietta, Ohio, was named for Marie Antoinette. Who's Marie Antoinette? She, is the, she was the wife of King Louis XVI. Sadly, she and uh, Louis XVI, her husband, were uh, beheaded uh, during that infamous French Revolution. But the reason why um, Marietta, Ohio, got named for her was because one reason for that was due largely in part because who was king of France during the uh, French Revol during the American Revolution? Louis XVI. And did he um, approve of sending supplies to America and defeating to the um, newly created United States with the intent on wanting to defeat the British, given that the French were um, badly humiliated in the French and Indian War? Absolutely so. So why not? Um, I think it's great that... Um, to name um, a place, not just so much in Ohio, named after Marie Antoinette, but the irony to Marietta, Ohio, folks, was that Marietta, Ohio, became the first permanent U.S. settlement in the, in the new Northwest Territory established, um, established in the year 1788, just one year um, before, just uh, one year um, later, um, given that in the year 1787, that's when the Northwest uh, Territory had been um, formally established. So that's definitely a, a hallmark uh, there, to say the least. So the first Erie sailed all the way. Um, she sailed from Mobile, Alabama until 1833 when she became abandoned. So we've got a forward to 1833. That's when the second Erie sidewheel paddle boat was built in New York City. How about we move to 1836? Uh, the third Erie was built in Detroit just one year before Michigan was ad admitted to the Union as a 26th state. In 1837, the fourth and final Erie side wheel was built at Presque Isle Shipyard of Thomas G. Colt and Smith Jackson's Erie Steamboat Company in Pennsylvania. So it is fair to say, folks, that um, that more than one ship named Erie did exist. So we have to wonder, will the fourth and final steam uh, ship Erie be able to perform uh, multiple voyages along Great Lakes waters? Will she be one of those ships that that is safe, reliable? Will the people aboard her want to ride her more than once? Well, we might uh, find that out here soon. If not all of it, perhaps in the next uh, podcast segment. Now, um, I know most of you all would 
would not know who this person is, and I didn't know anything about him until I read the book, but this book, rather, I should say, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, tell you all about this fella named Charles Manning Reed. So, anyways, why is, why is this fella named Charles Manning Reed important? Well, for one, he was a native of Erie, Pennsylvania, born in April 1803. Why is 1803, folks, important? Well, that is the year for which the Louisiana Purchase came through, folks. The Louisiana Purchase doubled the, the United States' size. And also in 1803, what I find also unique, is that um, Ohio was the 17th state admitted to the Union. Ohio was also the first state carved... The, Ohio being part of that old Northwest Territory, or what we now know as present-day Midwest, Ohio was the first out of that Northwest Territory to be carved out into an actual state. She had about... she, I think the rule was for the Northwest uh, Territories that they needed to have at least 60,000 people or more to be able to apply for statehood status. So it would be fair to say that Ohio had um, gotten to that uh, threshold mark and she met the criteria for um, being able to uh, be admitted into the Union. So so that, to me, folks, is a big revolutionary breakthrough for, this, for the Northwest Territory. So, yes, for Charles Manning Reed, given that he's born in 1803, Ohio is admitted um, to the Union as the 17th state. The Louisiana Purchase has come through doubling the United States' size, and before we know it, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark and their um, and their band of other um, what we would call assistants or um, colleagues will be joining them on that um, westward um, journey that will take them all the way out to the Pacific Ocean, where they will eventually start mapping the future of the United States. However, the most important thing for Charles Reed is that he would eventually become the leading ship owner throughout the entire Great Lakes. He was also the steamship Erie's only owner, or rather I should say ship owner. So in other words, folks, we're, gonna, we're dealing with an individual who's going to be rising to um, significant fame. I mean, he may not be up there with um, titans like John D. Rockefeller or J.P. Morgan or... Andrew Carnegie, or Carnegie, um, he may not be on that caliber, but if but if he's um, establishing himself well enough to where he's going to be well known throughout the Great Lakes region when it comes to the shipping industry there, that's um, that's a reputation onto itself. Charles Manning Reed was the grandson to the first settler of Erie being uh, that of Seth Reed, whom just so happened to serve in the American Revolutionary War. Charles Manning Reed attended and graduated from Washington College in Washington, Pennsylvania, which is uh, just outside of Pittsburgh. Today, uh, the college is now known as uh, Washington and Jefferson College. Ironically, uh, for Mr. Uh, Charles Manning Reed, his original plans were to actually have become a lawyer, Interesting enough, many of us, even in today's time, or, or even I remember when I was in college, I thought I was going to be a lawyer myself. But it turns out I've been in transportation for 16 years, and um, even though I, I was a political science major, I 
as the old saying goes, sometimes you never know where life will take you, even if you're not um, major, even if you're not using your degree um, for what it was that you had majored in. But yes, for Mr. Uh, Charles Manning Reed, he thought he was going to be a lawyer, but he did get accepted to the bar in Philadelphia around 1824, but it turns out he never practiced law. Instead, he followed his father's footsteps via ownership of Great Lakes vessels. Now, during the uh, period, or I should say time frame, from 1837 to 1838, when the steamship Erie was being built, including uh, her maiden voyage, uh, Charles Reed had served as a member to the Pennsylvania State Legislature in the uh, House of Representatives. Charles and his dad, Rufus Reed, held ranks of general and colonel within um, the militia units they served. Rufus Reed was known for securing big uh, government uh, transactions, or I should say deals, and helping supply uh, western forts. And of course, when I think of western forts, I think of, um, you know, like around western Pennsylvania, what we now know as present-day Pittsburgh or uh, Duquesne, and especially along the Pennsylvania-Ohio uh, line in terms of uh, western forts. And it's not so much that he's uh, securing these uh, gov big government transactions and deals for the forts, the, w the western forts, but he's helping ensure that essentials are provided to these forts, like beef, pork, flour, whiskey. I mean, think about it, folks. You know, he's got to provide some form of logistics, given that there are people manning these forts. Uh, all the time, and without those essential provisions, then how can those, then how can those people function, and how would they might even be able to survive? I mean, it's more than just beef, pork, flour, and whiskey. You've got to have, you know, cannons. You've got to have um, weaponry. But it, it, you've got to think about the whole nine yards when it comes to um, securing a, go a government transaction, or let alone uh, various uh, government deals, both big and small. Now, given that the Erie was a wooden steamship and operated with side-wheel paddles, what were some unique features behind her elegance? Now, I'm sure many of you all were itching to know what, what truly, in fact, made her so elegant. Well, for starters, uh, she was 176 feet, 8 inches long, 27 feet, 4 inches wide, with a depth of 10 feet, 8 inches. Okay, that's just the 101 part. Secondly, uh, Steamship Erie was equipped with state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line passenger cabins. Okay, folks, we are really moving on up. So these, these uh, state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line passenger cabins, folks, could hold up to 250 passengers. It might be fair to say that the Erie is a smaller version of Titanic or... Lusitania or Mauritania for its time. I'm just beginning to wonder. Better yet, Erie had 12 state rooms. Boy, I tell you, state rooms, that sounds grand. Well, the state rooms, folks, were the rooms that were used for formal occasions, or let alone rooms that a captain or any of his um, crew or commanding officer and his crew would have been uh, occupying aboard the ship. So, the steamship Erie could hold up to roughly 300 passengers, including a crew of 30 to 40 people. 
And the steamship Erie, folks, if she could hold up to roughly 300 passengers, including the crew of 30 to 40 people, think about this one, folks. The Erie had three lifeboats as well as from 60 to 100 life preservers. Three lifeboats, folks, and if you're and if the ship is filled to just the ship has up to 300 passengers, and that includes the 30 to 40 uh, crew crew people. What if something happens? Can everyone get aboard? Will everyone have the opportunity to get aboard a lifeboat? And will will everyone have enough uh, access to a life preserver? And speaking of life preservers, folks, I was actually blown away that um, life preservers have been around a lot longer than we would ever imagine. Of course, in the 19th century, the life preservers of that day and time were not, probably weren't as sophisticated as we know them to be today. But if they did work, then they worked well for the times uh, in which those people were living in. So it turns out, folks, that the first life jackets or preservers go back well before the 19th century when people navigating the waters, folks, resorted to um, using animal skins and hollow-sealed gourds for safety purposes when crossing, or I should say navigating, deep streams and rivers. So if you misjudged um, the depth of a river or a stream and you fell, and you fell over, and you had your, um, you had a life uh, preserver uh, that was made out of animal skins and um, or a hollow sealed gourd. Your chances of survival still were pretty good, uh, depending on maybe where it is you fell and hope you you just would have prayed and hoped that that the current wouldn't have been so strong to where it would have uh, pushed you beyond your control, where you probably could have sadly lost your life via uh, drowning. So. We should always keep in mind that uh, life jackets and life preservers do go back uh, further than uh, present-day uh, modern times. Now, as for where Erie's lifeboats are placed, uh, the three lifeboats were placed on her uh, main deck, whereas all of the life jacket preservers on board the ship folks were placed in the women's large cabin. I don't know why they got placed there, but that's where I. Um, but that's what I learned, and of course here we have to wonder if all the um, life jackets are placed in one facility. What's going to happen when a time of crisis occurs? How quickly can everyone get access to a life jacket when we're only when we could possibly only be dealing with a matter of minutes? that could make all the difference between life and death. The 12 staterooms were intended to represent comfort. Not just comfort, but how about state-of-the-art luxury? Yes, I think it'd be fair to say that, um, that, if, you, uh, that if you were going to uh, occupy a stateroom, if you're not, say, one of the um, top-level crew people, like, say, the captain or next in line to the captain, you probably have to uh, be well-off financial-wise, or you just have to have some good connections. Maybe, you know, for all I know, if, if you do occupy the, one of the staterooms, you might have connections with the captain. 
who knows, you could have actually um, ridden with the captain before to where if he liked you and wanted you to be a part of his inner circle for entertainment purposes, then hey, he would have said, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, I'll see to, I could see to it that you will be able to occupy one of the uh, 12 staterooms aboard uh, Steamship Erie. The promenade, being the upper deck, provided benches for all passengers whom sought to take in the sun and air, as well as seeing up-close scenic landscape views from the American and Canadian sides. Well, remember, folks, you know, Lake Erie, there's four of the five uh, Great Lakes not only are uh, confined to American waters, but also Canadian waters. Anybody know which of the five Great Lakes does not is only on the American side, it does not go into Canada? The answer is Michigan, Lake Michigan. The other four are both U.S. and Canada. I've been to three of the five Great Lakes. I've seen uh, parts of Lake Michigan in uh, Chicago and in, uh, Wis and in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I've seen Lakes Erie and Ontario. I, I do hope one day to be able to uh, visit uh, Superior Lake Superior and Huron. Now, before uh, steamships, Erie's maiden voyage could take place along with providing ferry service routes, what did Mr. Charles Reed, the Erie's owner, have to pursue in the meantime? His biggest priority focused upon staffing the ship, which meant wanting to select the best captain available for the job. So, Charles Reed selected a... A distinguished gentleman, folks, who is well under the age of 50. He's also under the age of 40. He is a 30-year-old named T.J. Titus, whose resume, or I should say record, along Great Lakes waters comprised of 16 years. So if he's just 30 years old, folks, and his record has been that of 16 years, that should tell us, folks, that he started... Um, that he started on uh, ships at the age of 14, and he, is, he obviously worked his way up the ladder. And we also need to keep in mind, folks, that even back in the start of the 19th century, I, I've said this before and I'll say it to you all again right now, life expectancy was not high. So when a young fella reached the age of 10 or made it past the age of 10, he was really technically considered an adult. Even all, Captain Oliver Hazard Perry, who uh, achieved fame at the Battle of Lake Erie, he started going out along the waters at the age of 12 and 13. So, so basically, folks, you know, if, if, we make, if a young man makes it past the age of 10, he's got to be able to know what kind of career he wants. He can't wait till he's 20 or 21 as, to decide what he wants to do, like what what most young people can decide uh, when they're in college um, in, in, this, in, in today's modern-day world. So, yes, Charles Reed was 30 years old, and, his yes, his resume uh, record along Great Lakes waters comprised of 16 years. He already served in the headmaster position for just over nine years. Titus's previous command posts had ranged from uh, schooners being vessels with two or more masts, uh, such schooners as the United States and Aurora, to steamboats Ohio and Sandusky. The newspaper Erie Observer reported on May 26, 1838, how Captain Titus had become 
reputably well-known amongst the greater traveling public whom frequently traveled. Captain T.J. Titus's official name, would you all like to know what his official name is? I'll tell you. Captain T.J. Titus's official name was Thomas Jefferson Titus, named for America's third president, Thomas Jefferson. Titus was born in 1808, the last official year of Jefferson's presidency. What a fitting tribute, uh, nonetheless, to say the least. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, episode, and when I'm on, when I'm back on the air again next, we'll go into uh, part two of two behind um, the unique elegance of Steamship Erie. Well, I hope wherever you all may live, I hope all of you have a great weekend. And once again, thank you for being such ardent listeners, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time um, to t- to talk more about. Um, our current uh, book topic uh, podcast series. Uh, Take care for now, and wherever you all may live, stay safe.